Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Welcome to Americans Watching the Footy, the worst podcast on Anchor. Yaboo Bay. Here in South San Francisco, I'm Benjamin Castle alongside my brother Ethan. This is our 66th episode. This is nominally our grand final preview, though. We'll be getting to a lot of things before we actually get to talking about that somewhat important game happening on Saturday. We expected to have a decent amount of news coming into this with continued trade movement, but... A lot of other things have happened, and we're going to have to dive into them because it's just the necessary part of the discussion. Yeah, um, there's some lighthearted news, some not-so-lighthearted, some player movement. Kind of going all across the board here, and then, of course, we'll be doing our postmortems on the two teams that will not be joining us in the Grand Final because they lost this past week. I thought Gil just didn't give them roses. That, too. The Bachelor finale or Bachelorette finale or whatever, I think that was this week. I don't know, because I've never watched it. Like, literally never. Plus, I'd rather watch Farmer Wants a Wife. Yes. Big Farmer Wants a Wife fan. But um, when the soup was on, I would actually, you know, get my bits of Bachelor content. They made a Muppet for one of the women in it because she was, like, so wall-eyed and bug-eyed. And it was, it was fun. I'll, I'll try to find a photo of it. Not that the people watching this could see it, but... Ethan is the biggest Joel McHale fan I know. Yeah, I I think he's pretty awesome. He's like a tall and way funnier Ryan Seacrest. Well, we're kind of lighthearted at the beginning of this, so let's stick with that direction. You know, the two most famous words ever spoken in the world of footy are thanks, Basil. Thanks, Basil. And at long last, Brett Kirk told all recently... With an interview on Triple M, an article that was posted shortly thereafter, he meant it. And that's what makes it even better. I mean, you can kind of tell that he meant it. And unbelievably, that was already more than a decade ago. Yeah, ten and a half years. Well, if there's one thing to remember just in terms of time frames from that, that was at the start of the 2012 season. The Swans won the flag that year. And now he's telling all right before the Swans are in the grand final again, dot, dot, dot. Hopefully no correlation. I, I hope. I mean, he's not the one presenting the Premiership Cup if the Swans win. It would be 1995 Bradlow medalist Paul Kelly if the Swans do win. And it would be Cameron Ling for Geelong. And he was, of course, the last captain to lift the Premiership Cup for them. You look at a photo of him, he does not look like. He was playing just 11 years ago. He has not aged so gracefully. Lloyd Meek has nominated Hawthorne as his preferred destination. I think if he does go there, it would be fun to see kind of how they flex guys around in the ruck situation between him and Ned Reeves. 
as I've said before, towards the end of the year, Reeve showed off his ability to take forward marks and was a pretty decent kick. So you could have some fun working both of them in there at the same time. There were a lot of teams, though, that were interested in Meek. The Giants were considered front runners for a while. Apparently, Richmond might have even been in the mix, which just seems weird with how Ben Miller has been progressing and also that they have Yvonne Soldo in there still. Maybe they were already preparing or attempting to prepare for life post Topin and Kerbis. I'm not entirely sure, but Hawthorne is definitely a team that needs to build up their ruck depth, and it seems like they're trying to do it with a more affordable approach than some other teams are trying to take. I hate the idea of him playing against Geelong more because he was so damn good against them this year. The other thing that comes to mind in this is one of the guys who's kind of left hanging is Max Lynch, and I've never thought he's a particularly good player, but he seems like one of the funniest guys in the sport full of goofy people, and unfortunately just the concussion stuff is really piled up for him, so I hope he's able to get to a point where he'll actually be able to play and have some stability, but if you're the Hawks, it would be reasonable to think he won't be a factor in your long-term plans, just considering his track record with concussions. Continuing with our roundup, and kind of going over all the different aspects of AFL news, we do have news of one retirement, and that's Sean Higgins, who has played 260 games between three teams, nine years at the 129 games in nine years at the Bulldogs, 108 in six at North, where he was two-time best at Verist and a one-time All-Australian in 2018, and 23 in the past two years with Geelong. I was never particularly impressed by him in these past couple years. Never felt like he really fit as neatly as a lot of other players did. You could tell he was nearing the end of things. He was definitely a good player in his prime. And it's unfortunate we never got to see that because I'll basically just associate him with, you know, being a guy where I constantly ask, why the hell is he in the lineup? And we just saw him at the end of his career and the game had passed him by at that point. The two years before we started watching in 2020, he polled a combined 33 Brownlow votes. So it was clearly there. And hopefully, thanks to Watch AFL, we can go back a few years and maybe in the offseason, we'll take a look back and try to see the kind of work that he did in his prime at North. A guy whose two best seasons of his career came right around age 30, if we're going, defining best seasons by number of Brownlow votes. In fact, looking at the table conveniently provided on his Wikipedia page. Before the 2018 and 19 seasons, he only had one season with double-digit Brownlow votes, and then he racked up 15 in 2018 and 18 in 2019. So at one point, it looked like he was aging gracefully, and then he kind of fell off a cliff. But if all goes according to plan this week, his final season will have been with a premiership team, and not just that, one in his hometown. He is from Geelong. His dad played for the Geelong Reserves. His sister played netball in Geelong. He was a Geelong Falcon himself, Sean. So it is nice that it got to come full circle for him. It's just unfortunate that he didn't play better during that final stage of his career. He's only managed five games this year, the last of them being round 16 against North. We talked about the biggest individual award of all in our last episode, we talked about Brownlow Knight for a good 20 minutes or so at the end of that. Go back and listen to that if you haven't already. One award that hadn't been given out yet 
was coach of the year. And surprise, surprise, it's the guy that took his team from just above the wooden spoon to a prelim. Craig McRae leading the bounce back year for Collingwood. I was never quite sure what the problem was, and I didn't ever think it was solely Nathan Buckley. Maybe it's just that things had gotten stale there. You've talked multiple times about how every coach does have an expiration date, and maybe the 10th season was just one or two too much for Nathan Buckley. The game evolves, and a lot of coaches don't. That's just a simple empirical fact across a lot of sports. I do want to give an honorable mention to a few different coaches who had really successful runs this year. Justin Longmuir finally being able to realize the potential of that Fremantle list and still with a lot of it in the pipeline. And you're going to see that pipeline emerge more and more with the player movement that we expect with some notable, somewhat older pieces leaving. I'm not sure if you're going to mention Stuart Dew amidst this, but the fact that the Suns took a major step has to be somewhat to his credit. Chris Scott did a great job learning from last year's mistakes, and if he can get over one last hurdle against the only team he hasn't beaten in the last two years, this season would be the ultimate success. John Longmire obviously is damn good at what he does. He's one of those coaches who's so consistent in 2020 aside that he's probably never under consideration for it. And the guy who was just a pleasant surprise throughout the year for me, even if his team didn't quite have the record that the others did. Sam Mitchell, because he was constantly innovating. He had a really good balance between his team's identity and, you know, crafting a game plan to fit his opponent. Made a lot of good in-game adjustments. And I just really enjoyed watching Hawthorne this past year because you felt like you learned something new every week, whether it was about one of their players or about coaching or... You felt like you got smarter watching almost every game they played. And I guess with that, we'll transition to the much darker Hawthorne news. Uh, Benjamin, you can kind of take the lead here and introduce things if you want. It's really unfortunate. We've been talking so positively about Hawthorne for a lot of the year. What Sam Mitchell has shown, the emergence of Chankwath Jaff into a player that other teams had to give really specific attention the rise of Mitch Lewis, Ned Reeves showing his potential, a smart coach in his first season, and then it's all ground to a halt because of matters from the Alistair Clarkson administration. Russell Jackson from ABC, Australia's ABC that is, of course, dropped a bomb of an article that talks about some of the findings that are to be soon released from Hawthorne's internal review, which seems to be somewhat similar to the Do Better report that Collingwood undertook this past offseason. It seems a lot more severe, though. This seems way more egregious. In scope, the intent was similar, but the external review, and I quote directly from the article here to make sure I don't mince any words, quote, will reveal allegations that key figures at the AFL club, that being Hawthorne, demanded the separation of young First Nations players from their partners and pressured one couple to terminate a pregnancy for the sake of the player's career. Jackson talks more about this allegation in particular with quotes provided from the player implicating Alistair Clarkson, Chris Fagan, who was one of his top assistants and general manager of football, as well as player development manager Jason Burt in terms of this pregnancy termination conversation and keeping these Aboriginal and Indigenous players away from their families. Nothing good could come out of this for the club. 
or for the people that were involved who are now at other clubs. Hawthorne have released a statement saying, yes, we have a report. It's ongoing. Basically, as matter of fact as you can get, no denial of anything, of course, because it's from their own review. The Lions have also put out a statement. Chris Fagan is taking a leave from the club while the investigation is ongoing, and he will be cooperating with it. At the time of recording, very late Tuesday night here in California, Wednesday evening in Australia, North have yet to release a statement. And of course, that's where Clarko is now. So I'm just waiting on that word from Arden Street. And by the way, the partner of the player in question did in fact have their baby still and was kind of a relief reading that, honestly. According to Hawthorne CEO Justin Reeves, Clarkson and Fagan were not interviewed as part of the external review. Reeves said this process was to speak purely to our First Nations past players and staff. So the next step would involve talking with Clarkson and Fagan and figuring out what roles they had in this. And the AFL is putting together an independent panel as well to provide a report to their integrity units. So this is only the beginning. I don't know how much of the iceberg has already been uncovered from this first part of the report, but it's definitely something we're going to be following over the next few weeks, if not longer, because this has the potential to impact three clubs at the very least in multiple ways in terms of potential sanctions and fines against clubs, player movement to those clubs if there's fallout with the coaching. I mean, if you're, say, Taryn Thomas or Phoenix Spicer at North, or if you're Kadeen Coleman or Nakia Cockatoo at Brisbane, could change how you feel about your coaches. Sticking with the Chris Fagan thread, the Brisbane Lions are one of the two teams that lost this past week, ending their season. So in turn, we are going to kind of review their season. People are wondering if the AFL held on to this information because Brisbane were still playing. I don't exactly know what to think of that. I don't think so, because this was an internal thing at Hawthorne. So I would say it's unlikely, but not impossible. Fortuitous timing, if so, that it didn't distract the Lions during their season. Of course, you know, they had bigger problems to deal with in that prelim when they got just run over. In the third quarter in particular, but it was a weird season for the Lions because if you're talking about what expectations you set for them at the start of the season, I'd say some of them were reached, but those came in the finals rather than during the home and away, because after being within the top four between rounds three and 19, they slipped out of the top 10 following their 48-point collapse against Richmond, leading by 41, only to lose by seven in round 20. After being beaten down by Melbourne for the second time in nine weeks, they fell all the way down to sixth, and then they got their revenge on Richmond in a type of close game that I didn't expect the Lions to win, even though Richmond had had their struggles themselves. And then, perhaps most surprising of all, they avenged those two losses to Melbourne at the G. So it was a circuitous route to get to somewhat progress for Brisbane in terms of getting those couple finals wins, though they did fall again in a prelim like they did two years ago, and it was in embarrassing fashion once again. So how far did they progress? Not entirely sure. It's really hard to decide what to make out of this season because I would say they underachieved in the home and away season, 
which put them in the spot to begin with where they were able to win two finals and yet not make a grand final. If their home and away season had gone how you would have expected, winning two finals would have implied they made a grand final and it would have been, yeah, great season. Good job. So I would call this season like a moderate success for them. It's it's confusing. Both teams that were eliminated in the prelims went three and five against finalists during the home and away season. Brisbane's two other losses during home and away were an umpiring shit show in Launceston against Hawthorne round 10. 50 descent. And a 10-point defeat to a rising Essendon team while shorthanded by COVID. If you're wanting to talk about success for Brisbane, the younger parts of their list certainly broke out in multiple ways. Well, some of them had already somewhat broken out. We had already understood the potential that Zach Bailey had, and he really showed it for a lot of this year, complementing and often being the main piece of some of their transitioning from the back to the forward third. Getting Cameron Rayner back from his ACL injury was a huge boost as well, and hopefully the ankle injury isn't too severe and doesn't impede his ability to be able to have a clean start to 2023. When it comes to players that we hadn't really thought about before this season, Jared Berry and Devin Robertson got more consistent midfield time. Berry flexed his strengths as a tagger, especially in that semifinal where he shut down Clayton Oliver once he was moved on to him in the second half. And then Robertson can play in multiple different spots. He can play inside, outside, had a couple of nice moments where he was pushed more toward the goal as well. So he could be a somewhat versatile forward two-thirds player for them. You also had Reese Matheson putting up absolutely insane stats of VFL before finally getting elevated later in the season. He calls himself the barometer. Really, Gary Rowan deserves that title, but I like Matheson, so I'm all right with it. For some reason, he strikes me as being older than 25. Is it the beard? Probably mostly that. By far the worst moment of the Lions season, though, happened in their round eight win over the Eagles, when Darcy Fort kicked a behind. From that alone, he is Ethan's disappointment for the season. In all sincerity, I actually do have a different disappointment and success. Are we starting positive or negative this time? I guess... Let's start with the positives because there's one player in particular we haven't talked about yet, and I have a feeling he's the guy you want to talk about because it's kind of painfully obvious. Yeah, that would be Kadeen Coleman. Ding, ding, ding. He's become a really good intercept defender, even though he's just six feet tall. He does not seem six feet. I thought he was like 5'10". He's also really good at not only getting those intercepts, but engineering play back the other way. Kind of the whole team starts up out of the work he does. I remember when Daniel Rich went down a couple times. The first time I was worried about how Brisbane were going to be able to move cleanly out of the back. And then Coleman filled that role superbly. Then when it happened again, I was just like, all right, time for Kadeen to do that again. I actually wasn't as impressed by Rich for some parts of the season. He isn't my one negative player, but I did want to mention this. I felt like he did sometimes kind of half-ass some of his defensive assignments, but Coleman is never that type of player. He gives everything all the time, and he's a really versatile player in the back half for Brisbane, a really complete player in that respect. Benjamin, who is your positive? Because I took the obvious one. Well, I had been impressed by Lincoln McCarthy last year when he had kicked 36-15 and had really figured into their half forward work really nicely. I wasn't sure if we were going to see that again this year, 
and he put up nearly identical numbers, 35-13 in 25 games. He was a player that definitely completed their smaller to mid-sized forward work. A lot of our attention has been on Charlie Cameron these first three years because he's a player who we noticed very quickly just because we did, probably mostly from an appearance standpoint and a quick start to 2020. But I keep thinking that without McCarthy, the Lions would have much less direction going toward and inside the 450. Also, nobody on the Lions looks better in long sleeves, especially when it's the classic Fitzroy red. And Jesse's girl isn't a bad choice for goal song either. It is worth noting they will not be doing music after goals at the grand final. I think it's fine. It just doesn't need to be super loud to the point where it kind of dominates the broadcast. I don't think they need fireworks either after goals. I feel like one, it would have less of an effect in the daytime. And two, it was just weird for the cats to do that in their prelim. And the Lions had it too, which was especially funny when they were, you know, down by 60. Few honorable positive mentions before we move on to the negative. McCarthy would have been one of them. I just wasn't sure if he was going to maintain his output from the year before. I knew what he'd offered in 2021. Is he one of those guys that where it pains you to think the damage he could be doing on Geelong now and the competition he would have for best looking in long sleeves with Brad Close? Considering the way Tyson Stengel broke out, it hurts a lot less. Um, I really liked a lot of the young guys, some of the debutants for the Lions this year. He barely played because he got hurt, but Kai Lohman looked really good in brief stints. Darcy Wilmot debuted in finals and did a really nice job. Just the second player ever to have his first three games all be finals, and big stage did not scare him at all. He ate him up. It's really hard to pick who my biggest disappointment for the Lions would be. There are a couple of defenders who I thought left something to be desired, but I guess I got to go with Joe Danaher because of his inconsistency. You know, just a couple years ago, he was talked about so much as being such a huge addition and... There were times when he was really good this year, but there were a lot of games when he was just an inconsistent kick, quiet, playing on after taking a great mark like he did in round one against Port Adelaide. And you just rarely had that one-two punch of him and Eric Hipwood. When it was on, when both were clicking, it was lethal. It just wasn't happening enough. I think next year with Hipwood fully healthy, that should be a step towards better production from both of them. But... Yeah, Danaher wasn't able to take this team to the next level, and that's what he was brought in to do. You know, it doesn't help in any regard that he had that shoulder injury in round seven. He had started the season kicking 19-6 from his first six games, from the team's first six games. Four, two, three, three, four, and three goals in those games. Then two behinds against Sydney before being subbed off and... 20 goals, 16 behinds the rest of the way. Very rarely just kicked one goal, and even when he got those big bags was inconsistent. Kind of made me appreciate Eric Hipwood even more once he came back from his ACL injury in round nine. And as the year went on and he really rounded into form, I remembered what he was capable of. Kicked three goals in the elimination final, four in the semifinal. He was doing the kind of stuff that we had expected Danaher to do. As you said earlier, Ethan, there were a couple defenders who had down years for Brisbane. I had been really impressed by Harris Andrews in 2020 when he was an All-Australian, was the league leader in marks in 2021, 
and a lot of that was from intercepts. This year, I just noticed him getting beaten a lot of the time by his one-on-one targets, particularly Tom Hawkins in the preliminary final this past week, and I think that particularly colors my assessment of Andrew's season. He's only 25, but he may very well have already hit his peak. It was a very good peak, All-Australian in 2019 and 20, but something's missing now. Maybe he needs to bulk up a bit because he's not all that heavy for his height. He's 6'8", just 220 though. Maybe if he put some more muscle on, he'd be able to have more of a say in some contests because players smaller than him have been able to box him out and do pretty good work in those contests. Other guys who I thought were a little bit disappointing, uh, Noah Amsworth, although it's tough because he just turned 23 a couple months ago. Uh, Brandon Starcevich, towards the end of the year, had some really bad games. He had some really good games early in the year, but didn't quite finish the deal. I hadn't been so high on Darcy Gardner for the beginning of the season. And then as it progressed, I was more and more impressed by him. He did a good job in the prelim quieting Jeremy Cameron, which is something not many defenders, not many defenders have been able to do since Cameron came over to the Cats. Also, at the start of the year, Hugh McCluggage was considered a Brownlow contender before any games were played, and he came nowhere near that. He still had a solid year, but didn't, you know, take that next step to be like a superstar that some think he has in him. There's nothing wrong with him staying in the role he's been in. It's just if he could get to that next level, that's the sort of season that ends with winning a grand final. I'd like to see McCluggage doing more wing work this next year, going on the opposite side from Kalamachi because... If Josh Dunkley does come in still after the dust settles from this Hawthorne report and how it may impact Chris Fagan, then you could have Lockie Neal and Dunkley doing more of that inside work. And then that could free up McCluggage to go down the left wing like he was wont to do when the Lions were at their best a lot of the year. And speaking of Achi, I really did understand his value this year. And you could see that the Lions were a step behind when he was out after he got concussed in round 21. I will comment no further on that incident. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter to get our constant thoughts on all things footy. You can follow me personally at BenjaminHK01. You can find me on Twitter at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K. You can find Brian on Instagram at Kathleen Brian. And you can find Brian's namesake, playing in his second grand final in three years. So I ended up being correct when you put me on the spot before last episode, Ethan, and asked me which teams we were going to be eulogizing. I didn't feel nearly as confident in my assessment that we were going to be giving a post-mortem on Collingwood because just of how their season has gone. But is the honeymoon phase over? Probably because the season's over, but this seems More like a return to normalcy for Collingwood than anything. No, it went well beyond a return to normalcy. This year was a tremendous success for the Magpies. A return to normalcy in the sense that they made the finals and got a win. In terms of the pure 
win-loss, and their end result. In terms of how they got there, Cardiac Collingwood has been born. It's funny to be talking so highly about a team that lost two of three finals, both in pretty gut-wrenching fashion, both by a goal or less after having won a record 11 games in the home and away season by 12 or fewer points, a record by three. But this season was already a success long before they even got to finals because of the strides that they had made, again, coming from 17th the year before. Craig McRae has these guys playing the right way, fast, handball heavy, and with a good mix of youth and experience. In terms of youth, of course, you've got the Daycost brothers with Josh we already knew about continuing his strong work on the wing. We think he should have won his second goal of the year in three years. And Nick, the unanimous rising star, already leading a lot of play from fullback, which is pretty amazing when you've got Scott Pendlebury in the back third as well. More on Pendlebury in a bit. Then you have Jack, good for footy, Gidevin for everything he is. I can understand why it's so annoying to see him playing against your team, but he's awesome. I think because we can appreciate him from kind of this external omniscient perspective, we're able to enjoy him more. I mean, when he was getting tangled up with Zach Tui, I was certainly pissed at him and it was like, ah, that's why people have it in for him. But he's good for drama. And there are some endearing things about him. I mean, there are times when you realize this is a 19-year-old kid living his dream, and it's totally okay to be jealous of that. There was no moment more indicative of that than his shock and just kind of jumbled together, very, very short speech after winning the medal on Anzac Day after he had kicked five goals. Also, why would you get into a fight with Zach Tui among all people? I also really liked seeing the video of him at training, trying to get Taylor Adams to give him a piggyback ride. A couple other young guys that really caught my eye this year, Nathan Kruger started to find his place. He just didn't really have that spot at Geelong. And he also got injured twice in as many games. Did come back for the finals, though. And maybe my personal favorite, another one who suffered a season-ending injury, Reef McInnes. First off, what an awesome name. I just want to mention that again. I've been told he's half Filipino, which is pretty cool. That's why he was eligible to be an academy selection. Yeah, it feels so long ago now because he played rounds three through seven and then got subbed out in round 12. But I liked the physical side of his game. He seemed like he always knew where to be at the right times. And he kind of exemplified a lot of what this Collingwood team was. It was you know, maybe not the best players, but they knew how to get shit done. And... That leads me into my next point of this discussion. You know, it's fair to ask, what do you expect from them next year? Because, yes, the luck in tight games is hard to sustain, and a few things did certainly have to break their way in order for them to win some of these, such as, I mean, for Jamie Elliott to get the after-the-siren goal against Essendon, first you needed Harry Jones to miss the kick, then you needed Essendon to not set up at all defensively. And you needed neither player near Elliot to actually leap and make a contest out of it. But at the same time, Collingwood did a lot of smart things that do seem sustainable, that seem like they'll add up in close games. You know, other than this loss to the Swans, they didn't commit a lot of stupid fouls and give up 50s pretty regularly. They did a great job, you know, getting fingertips on balls, scrapping for everything. And... 
They just always seem to be mentally ahead of the competition. And they did little things that added up where, like, you'd see a play in the second quarter and think to yourself, that's going to be big later. I think that there is some sustainability with it, with the youth that we've already talked about, and with a couple more pieces that I want to mention. You really liked Isaac Quainer at the start of the season, in particular, found his way to getting a whole lot of intercept possessions. Yeah, he actually disappointed me some with how quiet he was later in the season. Though he showed up again big time at the prelim. Yeah, I think two of his better performances were against Geelong. I thought, you know, at times, that same sort of inconsistency you saw out of guys like John Noble, who you wonder, is he going to be a really good player moving forward, or is he going to be invisible? Because, you know, we saw both sides of it. Perhaps the player most responsible for locking down that first win against Carlton and it was really fitting that the ball was in his hands at the final siren. And in a season where a lot of things had to add up properly for them to win these close games, you know, you had those moments. You had games where they would do just enough right to get them over the edge. But also you would look at some of those wins and realize they won despite, you know, for example, Quainer having a bad game or Noble having a bad game or Darcy Cameron or whoever. So I think their ceiling is actually still pretty high. I don't think their path to success, they're going to have to win so many tight games. I think it's something that they're well-equipped to do. But how low is their floor? Yeah, not every game they're going to play in is going to be so down to the wire. And I mean, if you look at their margins in their defeats this year, early on, some of those were not pretty at all. Lost by 27 to Richmond in round eight and 48 to the Bulldogs in Round nine. Of course, right after that, they went on their 11-game win streak, and it's no surprise that that occurred when Nathan Murphy returned. Murphy, just 22 years old, by the way, is my individual positive for the year because it was evident what kind of impact he had. He came in, Collingwood won their next 11 games. Darcy Moore had been tasked with so much having to cover a lot of fullback play when that's Murphy's biggest strength and Murphy coming in, put more back to his natural position and both players were better off because of it. And that translated to the rest of the team. I'm really looking forward to and hoping for a full 2023 for Murphy. Just a couple other players on the younger end of the list. Pat Lipinski proved a really solid acquisition, was a bit quiet in the middle of the season, turning on again late. Lipinski is one of my positive honorable mentions because he went from being a guy, you know, a decent player to having some monster games and absolutely dominating the middle of the field. You really saw that early in the year and it just gives you hope for what his ceiling could be. And even though he still has a lot to learn and was quiet in the semifinal and prelim, when Ash Johnson is on, the man is on and he is a brilliant kick. I think he needs... Some help, though, in the form of a taller forward to be placed alongside him because he's 6'4", and you can just kind of tell that he isn't as big as some of the other key guys. Or maybe he just strikes me as a little smaller when you got a player who's seven inches taller on your team. But I feel like Collingwood, with their current list, really needs Darcy Cameron or Mason Cox, just whoever isn't in those ruck contests in the immediate pushing forward to maybe take some of the heat off Johnson, allow him to be able to lead toward more marks. I'd like to see him put on a little bit more muscle because he didn't really do a ton in physical contests. And if he can add that to his game, 
he's going to be really hard to stop because anywhere he takes a mark in the forward 50, you know he can score. In round 23 against Carlton and again in the qualifier against Geelong, he had two goals from pretty much the same part of the right pocket at the G and he approached him differently, I believe. I think one of them was more outside the boot and one of them bent back the other way. He's an amazingly crafty kick. My positive is also on the younger side. He's only 21, actually, and that's Bo McCreary, listed as a medium forward, but you can drop him back into a defensive role when needed. You can throw him all over the ground. I really like the versatility and physicality he showed off. His numbers throughout the year weren't amazing, but it seemed like he was one of those guys, you know, whenever he's involved with the play, something good happens. One honorable mention for me because of just how cleanly he fit into things near the end of the season, especially once Taylor Adams went down, is Trent Bianco just seems to be another one of those right place, right time players in terms of getting the ball moving through the middle. He was also part of that sequence down the left wing that led to the Jamie Elliott after the siren winner I just remembered. So that's the youth side of the list. But the experience side is still plenty there. Will Hoskinelli and Taylor Adams don't strike me as being on that side, but they're both 29. For some reason, I thought Hoskinelli in particular was younger. He is another one of those right place, right time players, especially close to goal. Tends to get some important crumbs and finishes them pretty well. Steel Sidebottom and Jamie Elliott, though, they're a bit older and they are both ageless didn't realize until I went back and watched those 2010 Grand Finals that Sidebottom was on those teams back then. He actually had hair on the top of his head then. Was the youngest member of that Premiership team. Jamie Elliott, maybe a bit of a renaissance year for him, or just he had really important moments and we paid more attention to him this year because of that. Was a super clutch player, very clean goal kicker in the fourth. We talked about his after the siren goal already. And then Scott Pendlebury, he is getting to 400 games. Nothing is standing in his way. Super smooth transition to halfback engineering play from there. Can, of course, still push into the midfield when required. Perfect captain in pretty much every way. And because we're American, we're obligated to talk about Mason Cox. He's 31, and he's still more than functional. He helped get things going when not a lot else was in the prelim early on. He was directly involved in three of the first four goals and still has his full field marking ability Still a very strong kick toward goal, was taught well, doesn't have any, you know, weird parts of his routine at all. I guess that's a benefit of being a latecomer to the game. One of the biggest testaments to how good of a job McRae and the rest of the staff did this year at Collingwood is that they found a role for Mason to fit in. Instead of asking him to kind of, you know, just take forward marks or just be a Ruckman, they kind of utilized him in both and maximized his abilities and didn't try to, you know, force him to style his game after anybody else. McRae was a really important figure to helping Mason early on in his career, so it's no surprise that that connection worked out well. And McRae learned from an early mistake in terms of where to situate things because in their seven-point loss at Brisbane in round five, McRae said, everybody tall go forward. And that's not a situation in which Mason does well. We didn't see him in that role again. Their ability to learn from their mistakes and not repeat them was one of the best things about this team. And again, I just have a lot of positive things to say about the way they've utilized their players. And I hope they don't get milkshake ducked. I mean, this season was the opportunity for them to get milkshake ducked, if anything. 
Benjamin, who is your negative for Collingwood this year? It's obviously tough to find a negative, considering how successful they were this season. But if you got to pick one, who is it? Other than Nathan Kruger's shoulder? I mean, it's a more unfortunate thing than anything that Jack Matchett wasn't able to make his way back in after being subbed off in round nine because he had some decent moments early on in the season. But I will say he didn't impress me as much as some of the other Collingwood defenders this year. So maybe he's in there. Other than him, it's hard to find much because Noble was inconsistent, but had his great moments. Jordan Degoe's success was a metric for a lot of the team. And we saw that in the prelim, but he offers so much that I can't have him as a negative, even with the off-field distractions. Honestly, you put up with the off-field distractions when he plays like he did during this final series. He was awesome. My negative is going to be Rody Majacek. Not that he had an especially bad year. Kicked 41-25, better output than last year. And was really important in a couple wins in particular. Had four goals three times this year, including in the Queen's birthday game against Melbourne round 13. However, after that game, he never had more than two goals the rest of the year. And if you could have his marking ability and success as a tall forward combined with Ginevan on the smaller side, you could really have something special. Or... You could have something special if he combines with Ash Johnson on the taller side. There's a lot that can be done there that just the Pies didn't quite capitalize on. And if he just went through a bit of a rough patch, things could be really, really fun for them offensively next year. If he's starting to decline, fortunately, there are still younger guys who can take things on. My check is actually 29 already, just a late bloomer, mature age guy who worked his way through the VFL. This is only his fifth year of AFL footy. All right. Postmortem's done. On to the actual game. You know, this is the grand final preview episode. So it's about time we actually get to the grand final. And this matchup almost bookends the season. Geelong and Sydney haven't faced each other since round two when Buddy kicked his thousandth goal. Sydney won that game 107-77. to It's the only time the Cats have allowed 100 points all season. The grand final will get underway at its traditional time, thank goodness, 2.30 p.m. on Saturday the 24th in Melbourne. So for American viewers, 12.30 a.m. Eastern, Saturday the 24th, 9.30 p.m. Pacific, Friday the 23rd. And, uh, I mean, we'll see if the full game actually gets carried on Fox Sports 1 or if they're going to say, fuck you, college football podcast, or just show the montage. You know, I actually would have loved for the grand final to be like two hours later, you know, to accommodate my work and said, I am actually only going to an early high school football game this Friday. If the Cats weren't in it, I would miss the start of the grand final live and then go somewhere to watch. But this is a special opportunity, so... I'm going to take Friday night to myself, sit at home, watch the game with Ryan. I feel like that's only right, and hopefully end up drinking a lot to celebrate. Are you going to film yourself doing a shoey if the Cats win? I'm thinking I might. As I said last time, no more wallets for Zach Tui to give back. Unbelievable that this is actually the first time that Geelong and Sydney have met in a grand final considering their original clubs to the VFL-AFL. And it'll be 
a damn good looking matchup too on the uniform front. On the injury side of things, Max Holmes left the preliminary final with a hamstring injury, but if I had to guess right now, considering the reports from training, I would think, yes, he's going to play. Not a guarantee, but if you had to guess right now, I would say the odds are at least 70% in favor of him playing. If he was to miss, that spot would probably go to one out of three of Sam Menegola, Mark O'Connor, and Brandon Parfit. I already talked about this a little bit in the prior episode, episode 65, so I'll keep this brief. Menegola is the most like-for-like replacement. O'Connor can do some wing work and is also a skilled tagger. Parfit's probably the most talented of the three, but a completely different style, more of a physical midfielder. When it comes to Sydney's injury concern, it's Sam Reed, who was subbed out after halftime with a right adductor issue. The Swans looked out of sorts for a lot of the second half when they didn't have Reed as that roving, tall, marking target. But he had to move more into the midfield to fill that role. And while he did some of that well, it wasn't the same as having Reed in there. Reed seems to be just more mobile a lot of the time in those situations. If Reed can't go, right now I kind of expect him to, but if he can't, the spot to maybe Joel Amarty certainly isn't going to be Pete Laddams. It's amazing how much more likable the Swans are without Laddams in there. That said, I still don't especially care for them. I find Tom Papley super annoying, as just about everyone does, but he's also a damn good player. And he's one of the three guys that I've really isolated as the players the Cats have to shut down in order to win this game. Papley's one. Who are the others? James Rowbottom and Nick Blakey. I expected those to be the two. I had really expected you to talk about Blakey because you had pinpointed him very early on as the good things happen when he has the ball kind of guy for the Swans, like Brad Close is for Geelong. Rowbottom, I think I might have realized just how important he is to them a little bit before you did, but we arrived at the conclusion at a similar time. No one is more important for Sydney at stoppages. So I'd love to see Joel Selwood to get that matchup. Or maybe Tom Atkins? I'm not sure who you put Atkins on because they also have a whole bunch of skilled midfielders. But I do think where Atkins goes will kind of have a domino effect in terms of where everyone else is going to go. I think you kind of, well, you could do this one of two ways. You could set up the game plan based off of where Atkins goes, or you could just kind of plug in the most logical matchups and then take the best player remaining and put Atkins on him. And the more I think about it, the more I'd go with the latter option, because I think Atkins can match up with a few different types of guys. Whereas, for example, we saw way back in round two, what happens when Jack Henry's miscast. And I would say with just about 100% certainty, he's not going to be the one on Franklin. I would imagine that goes to Sam DeConing, which would be awesome. You would have the 21-year-old DeConing against the 35-year-old Franklin. Important to note, DeConing was not playing round two, and it was painfully obvious. I think that was part of why Henry ended up getting that matchup. It was one of just two games... DeConing missed all year, and you see what an impact he makes. He frees up Tom Stewart to do more roving defensive work. Look, the Cats have not lost a game without Stewart this year. They're 1-1 one one without DeConing, and the one win was against North. So DeConing is more important to Geelong than Stewart? No, but he really fits into the system well and provides that 
physical one-on-one defensive ability. One of the only guys who he hasn't completely outplayed was back in round 19 against Charlie Dixon when they had a really good back and forth kind of swinging each way. I remember catching up on that game after being at the World Athletics Championships that day in Oregon and just pouring over that matchup over and over again. It's a somewhat similar matchup in terms of stature, so that'll be an interesting one to watch. If DeConing can have that similar level of success against Franklin, you know, he doesn't have to completely shut him down, but if he can stop him from completely dominating, that would be a big step forward. As for where Nick Blakey fits into things, I guess I see him more on Tyson Stengel than anyone else because I don't like how some of the other smaller defenders for Sydney match up against him. And I don't see them going for a size mismatch and trying to put one of the McCartans or Dane Rampey on him. Those three have got to have the combination of Tom Hawkins and Jeremy Cameron. Patty McCartan hasn't been as involved lately, so maybe he could be sort of the roving defender in the mix there to try to get him more involved. Teams at this point know not to go after him because he's a great interceptor and kicking to him usually leads to the Swans pushing back the other way. So hopefully the Cats don't lose all of the things they've done right and don't go back to, you know, just bombing it into the forward 50. So you would want to have Patty on maybe Jeremy Cameron then to try to isolate that and take Cameron away as a marking target if you were John Longmire? I would say that would make sense, especially because I think you're more likely to get, you know, if you had to pick your poison between Cameron and Hawkins, I think you'd take your chances with Hawkins because he's had some games where the accuracy hasn't been as good and he's not as much of a factor outside of the forward 50, whereas if you're defending Cameron well, he can just come up outside of the forward 50 and still make plays. So so Patty on Cameron, Tom on Tom, and Rampy kind of roving then? At some point, Rampy's going to make a big one percenter play. Probably and, in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and so, I don't know, you could try Rampy on Cameron at some point, maybe when, if Patty goes off at all, it's worth trying for a brief sequence just to see what happens. And unless the Swans get into a huge early hole, they should be able to have some room for experimentation like that. Other than those three, other than those three taller defenders for Sydney, it really is a lot of kind of zone-based play for them. Just kind of groups of players traveling with the ball in the certain areas. So that's why I wanted to focus on those matchups in particular, because we know Chad Warner's going to get those runs through through the middle, and he's going to have the support there. I heaped praises on Errol Golden and Justin McInerney, who does have a slight injury concern. He was attended to in the fourth quarter of the prelim, but he should be fine. I talked about them a lot in the prelim breakdown. It's scary that the Swans are already where they are. And in a lot of respect, you have two teams on opposite ends from each other in terms of age. Though Geelong are transitioning toward their younger players having more important roles pretty nicely. If Holmes was to not play, this would be one of the oldest lists ever in a final. But again, the younger guys have been a factor. DeConing, Close. Um, one of the issues in that round two game at the SCG was that Close was playing too far forward and just didn't get too many chances to get involved. I think one of the other ways you can make sure Patty McCartan and Tom McCartan, um, one of the ways you can make sure the McCartans don't have too many intercept opportunities is if you're running and handballing and with Close and Myers showing off their speed, there should be enough chances to do that. At last, we get to the Brian Myers discussion. It was more of a Brad Close discussion, though. Uh, I knew we weren't going to go without mentioning Myers, who had a really strong performance in the prelim, 
garnering eight coaches' votes, doing his typical assist work, mopping up a couple goal chances as well. He's been silencing a lot of doubters, and hopefully that continues. I think the path to victory for the Cats in this game is compete at the midfield. You know, you don't have to dominate midfield, but just be good enough against them. Krusty Brand seal of approval level. Be slightly better in the forward 50 and then have your defense go to work. I remember at one point this year, one of the Cats' social media pages, I think it was Instagram, might have been Twitter, had a photo of, you know, all the defenders together in the room after a win. Called it the Great Wall of Geelong. And if that Great Wall shows up, that's where they win this game. We've seen it. You saw it at its absolute best in the prelim against the Lions. And if something akin to that can show up, or like, I don't know, three quarters of that, it's going to be tough to lose. If the full version of that shows up, the Cats are just about unbeatable. Geelong are currently favored by 12 and a half. But of course, a whole lot can change with with a couple players' selections for each team still being up in the air. I find it very hard to see a path for victory for Sydney without Sam Reed for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Yes, Joel Marty has had a couple of nice performances in the year, but they're incomplete without Reed, especially when Geelong have a couple really strong tacklers going through that midfield. I expect at least one huge Tom Atkins tackle resulting in holding the ball against Warner Rowbottom. Calling it now. I just hope it doesn't lead to a momentum swing the other way like the Caleb Daniel tackle last year. I just don't see, you know, a huge run of goals in this one, like no more than four or five each way. But if it does happen, which team do you see getting on that run more? Which team do you think is more likely to get on that run, Ethan? I don't know. It's tough because I think the Swans could win enough clearances to do that, but It would be hard to fathom against the Cats' defense unless they do it through, you know, running and handballing because it would be hard to do by winning marks. If they can end up winning by running and handballing, I think they're going to have to never be too far off in the first half and then just manage to tire out the older parts of the Geelong list in the second half. I'm hoping Patrick Dangerfield has one more big running game in him, which because of his rest schedule you would think is very possible. Haven't seen him going two weeks in a row in a while though, but he was there early and often this past Friday. And at this point, I guess, would you tip him for the Norm Smith? If the Cats win, I would say yes. And if the Swans win, what do you think, Warner? Just kind of obvious selection there or? Warner, Errol Golden, you haven't mentioned him at all. I think Warner would be my pick though. Again, I talked a lot about Golden in our prelim discussion, how he's raised his game as a tackler. And then Heaney, yeah, we haven't mentioned him at all yet. And that would be really surprising for us to not talk about Isaac Heaney at all at the start of the year, but he hasn't been the focus nearly as much. So maybe this will be his time to shine again, because when the Swans do look for marking targets inside 50, if they're going short, usually it's for Heaney. Though we haven't talked about some of those guys shows you just how deep and how talented the Swans are. And ultimately, because of that, as much as I hadn't wanted to face them, it's the right team to face in the grand final. It's like I've said, it's kind of like a final boss matchup. And it's two of the three obvious best and most complete teams. I'd say it's easily the two most consistent teams all year. And at the end of the day, it's a matchup that I had expected. It's a matchup that I had wanted as well. I can tell you whoever wins it will 
have earned it unless there's some absolute dog shit umpiring. And that is one thing I'm a little worried about because at least the last couple times the Cats and Swans have met, umpiring has been very much in Sydney's favor, although those games were at the SCG. I don't think things would have been, I don't think the outcome would have been swayed, at least in round two. Without Sam DeConing, that was a completely different game. He was concussed, by the way, if you don't remember why he was missing that one. But the meeting in 2021, umpiring played a huge part. I remember that as almost the revenge against Geelong for the win they stole from Brisbane from bad umpiring. You win some from bad umpiring, you lose some from bad umpiring. I bet Swans fans are already fearing a repeat of 2016. I would gladly take that. I wouldn't because I don't want the game to be decided that way. And I know you don't either, Ethan. No, but the outcome is much more important. Yeah, this is a part of the season when you'll take wins however you get them. There are times when you care about the process as much, if not more than the results. This is not one of those times. Get it done. I don't care how. I don't care how ugly it is. Leave it all out there. This is the one. And frankly, this game's more important, I think, for Geelong. Yes, it's a grand final, but considering the youth on the Swan side, they've got more in them. Geelong, this is their last best chance. I don't know if there will be another opportunity with this core. I love the prospects of having a clean transition over the next few years into the new core so that there's not some sort of massive drop-off. But with this group, this is probably the last chance you're going to have for everything to add up like this. You've been able to rest Dangerfield and Selwood throughout the year. You won a qualifying final for once. Everything's set up so perfectly. Finish the job. I don't think there's a better way to kind of wrap up this discussion and wrap up the episode. So we're going to leave it here. We're going to let the players hopefully do the talking from there. We do have one last news item because it came up while we were recording. Second episode in a row that this has happened. In response to the Hawthorne news, North Melbourne have talked with Alistair Clarkson, who has put out a statement saying basically, I wasn't consulted on any of this. This is a fabrication. This is the first time anyone involved with it has come out and said, no, that didn't happen. Second, he will not be starting with the club on November 1st. That is now being delayed, which that seems to be the right immediate reaction, you know? I mean, he's already started with the club in a lot of ways. He's got to have a say in who else has been hired. So that's formality, in my opinion. Still, though, they're doing their due diligence with this. So hopefully everything gets worked out and and this all gets solved without any sort of you know special treatment being given to anyone being given to anyone because they're a good coach or anything like that. Hopefully this incident doesn't overshadow the grand final and what should be a great game and a fitting conclusion to this season. We're, of course, going to continue following this story, but hopefully those can remain in, I guess, in in separate spheres for the game. It's hard to separate it, though. Uh, I don't have much else to say other than you'll be able to find our reactions Americans footy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter at Castle Media. You'll be able to find Brian Harambe on Instagram at Cat Named Brian. You'll be able to find me at Benjamin HK01. And on Grand Final Night, you'll be finding me at the Golden Gate Ruse watch party at Buzzworks on 11th Street in San Francisco. It's going to be fun to be immersed in 
a crowd of AFL fans. It's going to be the first time that I've had any experience like that. Ethan, I assume you're just going to be watching the game here with Ryan the Cat because you want to just be able to focus? That and in the hours leading up to the game, I'll probably be watching some broadcasts of high school football games going on. And I've spent the bulk of this winning streak here, so don't mess with a good thing. Also, we went through this entire thing without mentioning Mark Blitzov, so I'm just going to mention him now. And I'm going to mention that he used to be a steeplechaser. I just found out through the AFL Central Instagram page, since his debut, he has played 226 out of a possible 238 games. Also, this will be Zach Tui's 250th game. Would be a great opportunity for him to make this a special one. I must say, Blitzovs will have a couple interesting assignments throughout this one. We'll see how much he needs to be doing ruck work against Tom Hickey, who did a very good job in the prelim, and I'm surprised we hadn't mentioned him yet either. But uh, I guess we've done our job now, and we'll be getting back to you after the grand final. Between now and then, we'll obviously have our thoughts on Twitter. I'll be putting out my trombone covers of Cheer Cheer the Red and the White, and We Are Geelong, so look for that. I'll definitely post those to Twitter, put them on Reddit as well, because that's what I do to really get ready for the grand final. Not sure what everybody else does to get ready, especially if their team is involved like Ethan, but uh, do whatever preparation you need and have your meat pies, your beers at the ready, and enjoy the grand final on Saturday as we will.